We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. If you would please turn in your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 this morning where we'll pick up in our scripture reading. As you turn there, I'll just uh, call to your remembrance. Last week we looked at four of uh, the seven churches to which the Lord, our Lord Savior, had a word to give to them. Some, at some points of commendation and others of a little bit of uh, admonition and rebuke. And as we said last time, these are real churches, not just representative of you know, churches in general, but they, are, uh, they do teach us good principles for us to contemplate in our own personal lives, but also as Fellowship Bible Church in Ann Arbor and uh, the things we can learn uh, that Christ has for us here even this morning in chapter 3. Would you follow along now as we read Revelation chapter 3? And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in, in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have your Bibles, would you privilege the Word of God in your life by opening it and setting it before you, as it is the Word not of men but of God, and to think of the effort that has been put into providing it for us, God wishing for us to have it, Luke wishing for us to have it as we turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and the Spirit of God working in Luke to make sure that everything that he put down was just exactly what God wanted it to be. And what else? Transmission, preservation, translation after translation, uh, printing, all of that so we could have God's Word before us. God certainly cares deeply for us and He's given us a wonderful gift. Luke chapter 7, verses 17 to 30 this morning. <clears throat> We've looked at this before together some time back, not this passage, but a parallel. Uh, the title is John the Baptist, Assurance and Praise. Uh, he needed that, and so let's read it from verse 17 on uh, to uh, 30, and then I'll kind of give a summation of what we've just read, and then we'll look at uh, some of the details of it. <clears throat> John 7 Sorry, Luke seven, seventeen, And this report about him, Jesus, went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. By the way, that report has to do with him raising a dead person, healing a centurion servant, and probably a bunch of other things that 
uh, he did that are not recorded for us here. Then the disciples of John reported to him, that is John the Baptist, concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? This may be a bit of a shocker to you. We'll look at why he asked this. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, Jesus, that is, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So the flow of the narration is simple. The news about Jesus traveled throughout all Judea and elsewhere. John the Baptist heard that information and then sent his disciples to ask a question, that question indicating his need for reassurance because the situation is confusing to him. Jesus answers, and give, give him a little bit of rope here for a minute, okay? You're going to see how this comes down to us today. Uh, verse or number five in my notes there in the introduction, Jesus uh, demonstrates, actually four, demonstrates his uh, power and gives a blessing to John because John has not departed from Christ or stopped believing in him. And then he speaks to the crowd about how great John is and how greater, how much greater those will be who are in the kingdom of God. And the crowd reacts, as we read, with this kind of a typical twofold response. Some received what was being said, and others just rejected what uh, he was giving to them. <clears throat> so let's back up for a second. John is in prison. Uh, it tells us earlier on, uh, we know from Matthew's gospel that he is, uh, we, we studied this in Matthew 11 before, uh, on a Wednesday night, I think it was, a while back. Jesus knew about John being in prison for some time. His imprisonment was sometime around the time of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. Remember, before that, John had baptized Jesus, so he wasn't in prison then, but there were, it was sometime shortly after that uh, that John ended up in prison under Herod, God had arranged apparently for John to be kind of set aside. Remember, John said he must increase and I must 
decrease. Well, God made sure of that, um, sadly for John, in the way that it was done. The whole story is told in, in a retrospective manner in Matthew's gospel, also mentioned retrospectively in Mark. Herod had imprisoned John because John criticized his marriage and called out evil that he had done. Herod had married his sister-in-law, his brother Philip's wife. So there was a divorce and a marriage, and John protested that it was illegal for him to have her as his wife. Now, you can debate about all that and try to figure all that out, and you can go back, go back and look at the history a little bit and see about that whole sordid family tree and everything about that. But the fact is, John had to be right here. Uh, we believe that he was correct he should not have married this one. Uh, she was next of kin. She belonged to his brother. But he was so angry, he wanted to kill John. In one, in one part of his heart, he wanted to kill him. And this shows how deep his illicit desire was toward his new wife. It really says more about his lust than it does about his love for this woman. Herodias, the woman, the wife, was of the same mind uh, to kill John. And as typical of sinners, they refuse to heed righteous counsel because they're super focused on themselves. All they want is their own pleasure. That's it. But Herod had another part of his heart that was constrained by his fear of the populace because they feared John, or he feared them because John was a true prophet, they thought, like one of old, and a prophet he was. Mark chapter 6 tells us that John, or rather Herod, considered John to be a holy man. And so he had this tug of war going on in his soul. At least he had something going on and just didn't cold-bloodedly kill him immediately, but he did later. So it wasn't too much difference in the end. It may have been a case of some superstition that if he did not treat John well, that he would be cursed by God. <clears throat> of course, in his fear, he had overlooked one key thing. He'd already put the minister of God in prison, which is pretty bad. Shouldn't have done that, but he did. What is it about tyrants that can't take a little criticism? You know, they can't take it. They're weak. That's what they are. And I'll say it again, they're weak. They can't take without the wall of defensiveness coming up and trying to get somebody in trouble or get them killed or put them in jail or get them set aside. It's sad. It's sad. You know, we ought not to be weak like that. Somebody says something to us, is critical, okay? Well, if it's true, take it. If it's partly true, take that. If it's not true, then just let it roll off. Eventually, circumstances came about in which there was an opportunity for Herod to carry out his desire, albeit at the urging of his stepdaughter, and even though he still had some misgivings about doing it in terms of fear of John and the political ramifications of it, he did it anyway, killed John, beheaded him, had his head delivered to the daughter and then to a stepdaughter and then to his wife. And it was just a whole sick uh, kind of evil, barbaric thing that people did then and still yet do today. How long was John in prison? We don't know exactly, but some suggest six to ten months. Others think about a year. Uh, others I looked at said maybe two years. I think it's a little bit long, but 
The chronology is a bit murky because the gospel writers don't write everything in lockstep chronological order. You know, there's kind of some going back and reviewing, and there's some rearrangement of events to meet the purpose of the author and so on. Um, you know, Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 14 speaks of John's arrest and murder, but they are mentioned as having happened at some point in the past. And in all the Gospels, the synoptics anyway, you have this kind of text, this kind of description of Herod saying, uh-oh, I hear about Jesus, I hear about all these miracles that he and his followers are doing, and maybe John the Baptist has risen up from the dead. I am hearing about people being raised, you know, uh, by this Jesus. So maybe John is back at it and uh, maybe in real trouble uh, I am because of what I've done to him. Well, we don't know exactly, but it seems like he uh, was in prison for maybe the better part of a year and uh, languishing there. And as you can imagine, if you were thrown into prison, just put yourself in his place. And it's not a five-star hotel over there. Uh, closer to a gulag. Um, You hear Jesus about what Jesus is doing, and you have to kind of combine this with what John was preaching. Remember what John preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do works befitting repentance. There's one coming after me who's greater than I. I'm not worthy to, you know, take his sandal off, um, but he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Brood of vipers... You know, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so there's a heavy element of judgment. There's a, a kind of a coming, uh, you know, what's going to come in the future. John is, is looking at that, and he's the minister of the, of the coming king. And what do you think John thinks when Jesus actually comes? I mean, he says, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what's going on in John's mind? Like, how is that going to work out? Is Jesus going to go around doing a bunch of good things and being merciful to sinners, maybe? Is he going to be helping Gentile centurions and raising you know, people from the dead and, but not, uh, not, not uh, bringing the kingdom in? Kind of slow coming, you know, think, things aren't quite right. Uh, John feels confused. Maybe there was someone else coming from God to finish the kingdom program, to bring the reign of Israel up to, uh, to scratch, so to speak, to throw the Romans out. Maybe there's a little bit of that zealotry in him. Uh, was, when was he going to bring judgment on this brood of vipers? I mean, look at them. They've thrown me in prison. They're wicked people. Isn't he going to come and get me out of here? Maybe this judgment should have begun to unfold already, but it didn't. He was, Jesus was offering the kingdom, but not bringing it. He was still calling for repentance, but guess what? People weren't repenting. He was healing multitudes of people of their diseases. He was supposed to be king, but Rome was still in power. Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. Many of the people did too. John shouldn't be waiting in jail this long, nor be at the doorstep of death for preaching righteousness. Perhaps he thought a triumphant return of, or a triumphant Jesus should rescue him and save the people and the nation, like, however, the prophets who suffered before him. He had trouble understanding the divine arrangement of things. And may I add to this the added weight 
of being under the sentence of death in a prison, confined, probably malnourished, darkness, isolation. What does that do to a man? Why do you think, why do they put people in solitary anyway? Break them, right? His situation uh, is akin to ours. When something bad happens to us or God is not doing what we think he ought to be doing. When we see vexing things happening around the world and we ask, How long, O Lord? Why are you letting things go on like this? Or if you get a diagnosis of a, of a terminal disease, what are you going to do? Are you going to say that God has suddenly left the building? He's let you down? No, what we're doing when we do ministry like this is we're building you a foundation without cracks in it so that when the winds come and the storm blows and the floods attack your house, your life, you will know, well, this is just what God has told us will happen. This is what has been promised to occur. I'm going the way of all the earth, perhaps, if you are in that situation and you have months to live rather than years. So this could put you into a real tailspin, couldn't it? A state of depression. I know none of you have ever experienced that before, have you? By so saying, I acknowledge that probably all of us have from time to time experienced a state of more or less depression in our hearts. And so John sends to Jesus to ask if he really was the promised one. There's, I think in John, there's not a full-out disavowal. There's not an, a full-on unbelief. You know what John is struggling with? The same thing that the man who cried out to God, who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Don't you have that, sense that in yourself? I have faith, but I don't have faith. I have some faith, but I don't have as much faith as I should have. I'm not, my faith is faltering in this particular situation. So what did John do? You know, we, we could take the role of critic here and say, John, you know, how could you not know? I mean, you're the one that said that he was the coming one. He, he, you know, he, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you saw the dove from heaven come down on him, the Spirit of God like a dove come down on him. What's going on here? Well, let me ask you, have you seen good things from God in your life? And then you fall into depression, and then what happens? You kind of lose sight of that stuff back there, right? You forget to recount to yourself the wonderful works of God. So let's not be too quick to criticize. It's quite a weakness, you would think, for a man of the stature of John, the greatest to ever live, the greatest prophet, the Lord says. But let me encourage you to be humble he was a man of like nature as us, just like old Elijah was, James 5.17 says. Elijah himself had a one, at least one major bout with prophetic depression, didn't he? To the point that he wanted to die. By the way, he also was under the threat of death. You know, It's almost like somebody is under the threat of death. It's like, man, I'd just like to get it over with now. Let's just be done with this, not have to worry about this anymore. 
Credible death threats, of course, putting an enormous amount of pressure on a person. But first, two things to notice about this. First, even the strongest Christians have seasons of doubt. Okay, that's not unheard of. It's not unusual. You know, we cannot draw together all the data points that we're seeing and, and make sense of them. You know, we look at the, the degradation in our own culture and say, why is God allowing this? Like, this used to be a, a more decent place to live, you know, more decently governed. Well, it's because people have become less decent. So we're just getting what shouldn't be any surprise to us at all. But we, we can't draw all that together. Why is God taking so long? Why doesn't he just come and rapture us now? Lord, may it be today. Maybe, though, too, we're worn down personally and easily discouraged, not nourished well, not rested well, cranky, grumpy, questioning, doubting. You know, even the mightiest among us falter. Listen to me, please. I've been pastor long enough to see older men and older women who have been faithful in the Lord falter and fail. Don't think it can't happen to you. There are people you would never imagine in your life that this has happened to, okay? And for long periods of time, you have got to guard your heart against allowing the seasons of depression and difficulty and doubt from taking you down. And, and it may not be those particular things, but it may be desires and uh, hopes to accomplish things and uh, you know, getting your eyes off of Christ and onto the things of the world, and you begin to falter that way. That's a different way of faltering, but it's still faltering. Even the strongest or strongest seeming of Christians have seasons of difficulty like this. You know how, what was it, was it Jonathan or David said, oh, how the mighty have fallen? just applied to a spiritual condition, how the mighty sometimes have fallen. Take heed to yourselves and to your doctrine, lest you fall. I must do that. You must do that. Sometimes we think things are very gloomy and the difficulties are never-ending, uh, but don't throw away your confidence. We can firmly be, believe this fact that God will make things more clear later. If there is as clear as mud right now, they will be more clear later. I'm not going to say that we're ever going to know everything because we're not omniscient beings. We can't ever be. We're limited, finite, but we will understand better as time goes on. So even the strongest Christians have seasons of doubt. But listen, when John faced doubt, he became an example for us because what did he do? When you face grinding doubts, nagging fears, lack of understanding, you go to Jesus. That's what he did, right? He sent messengers to ask Jesus, Are, is my thinking wrong here? And what did Jesus do? You know, like this? No, he answered his question mercifully. He answered his question with an abundant amount of data for him to chew on. Go to his word where he wrote about these things. Go to him in prayer. 
Go to other Christians who will point you to Jesus when you feel too dark to go there yourself. This is the best way to manage doubts. You're certainly not going to succeed by yourself. Like, well, I'm just going to isolate myself and figure this out. Okay, what do you have left if you isolate yourself to figure something like that out? You have yourself. You don't have the Bible. You don't have other people. God has put the Bible and prayer and other people and the church and preaching into our lives in order to help us through those seasons. Ask him to show you, to teach you, to give you wisdom, to lead you and to guide you. He will do it. You know, don't think you're going to understand everything perfectly. Nobody does. But you can confidently go to him. And so Jesus answers John in chapter 7, 20 to 23. And notice what he does. He first doesn't answer, at least as in a way that's recorded by Luke. At that very hour, he, he's, I can imagine a situation like they asked him the question and he's just like, come with me and watch. And he heals people of numerous afflictions and infirmities, infirmities and evil spirits and blind people. And so he just worked the miracles that were the authenticating signs of who he was. So they could be eyewitnesses of these marvels and go back to tell John exactly what they saw. So what was their report going to consist of? Didn't have to be very long. It would be like this. John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead live, the lame leap, the dumb speak, sinners are forgiven, people with leprosy are healed, those with illness and affliction and demon possession are cleansed. And by the way, he preached the good news to the poor in spirit. This combination of miraculous activities and ministry demonstrates that the one to whom they, uh, whom they observed was the one beyond Moses, more than Elijah, better than Elisha, or anyone else has come before. In fact, he is the fulfillment of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7. Isaiah 35, that's a favorite for me uh, to go back and look at in relation to these miracles. In Isaiah chapter 35, the text of Scripture tells us in verses uh, 4 through 6, these words, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, You hear that, John? Fearful-hearted? Be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. Verse 7, the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there will be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, a highway of holiness, and so on. You can read. That's about the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus was giving him the sign that, yep, I'm the guy. It's just not the time. It's just not the time. There's far more to Jesus than judgment. He exercises abundant mercy and gives aid to the children of Abraham. So John, or Jesus rather, if you look at verse number 23, gives a blessing to John 
And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so with that word of blessing, the messengers of John departed and they took all that back to him. So the end of their report would not only be all these miracles, but at the end would be this blessing of John, which reminds me of uh, the, the blessing in John's gospel, John the Apostle, in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, who demanded to see. Thank God for Thomas's doubt because that allowed the opportunity for Jesus to say that blessing, which then has blessed millions of, of souls across the world uh, and across the ages of time. So blessed are you too, dear ones, if you embrace Christ and are not offended at his teaching. There are plenty of people who have fallen on that stone of stumbling, Romans 3, 32 and 33. Listen, the scriptures have laid it all out already. You know, we know people, we know Romans 5, 12 is true because the cemeteries are filled with people who have died as a result of sin. We know Romans 3, actually Romans 9, 32 to 33 is true because we see many people who have stumbled at the teaching of the gospel. We know that in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon told Mary that many will, when he, he is set for the rising and the fall of many in Israel, many will stumble at him that we see it's happened. The scriptures have been fulfilled. People think it's foolish to believe in a man from Nazareth who died on a Roman cross. But blessed are those who are not offended by him or blessed are those who believe in him is what the Lord is saying. So now the messengers go away, and so now Jesus can, has a, a kind of a freedom, I think, to maybe talk about John the Baptist to this crowd and apply something to them relevant or relative to him. So in 24 to 28, it says he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And he asks these questions, and maybe you've wondered what these mean. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He, he asked that uh, once and then twice, and then a third time in verse 26. The first time he asked it, did, basically he said, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Um, God does not guarantee, by the way, a soft landing for John. That blessing was given, but John was still going to be martyred because he was a man of God, and Herod was a vile king. So the upcoming words here in this section almost sound like a pre-eulogy for John. So the Lord asked the crowds, what did you see out there when you went to the wilderness? He knew that many people had gone out to see John, this, this wonderful prophet that was giving this, this message of repentance about the kingdom of heaven, and there was an air of expectation, what's coming next, and who is this guy, and and many people responded in repentance and were baptized in response to that message. But he goes, uh, Jesus goes to this um, analogy of a reed shaken by the wind. Now, he's not saying, I don't think, you know, did you just go out to that wilderness area to see some nature and to see, you know, these reeds in these marshes? This is a metaphor or a picture of John. Did you go out there to see John because he was a guy flapping in the breeze like all of the other politicians? <laughs> like all of the other guys that just teach in whatever way the wind is blowing? 
Was he shaken by the fear of man? Did he blow about with every wind of doctrine, every new idea? No, you went out there to see him because he, he was firm and he said some truth. The second question, you know, did you go out there to see a, a king, royalty? No, not there either because he was dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt. No soft clothing, no luxurious um, palaces. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was, you know, the forerunner of Jesus. He was also the forerunner of a, a strange prophet, wasn't he? You know, you see in media how they portray John. He's like crazy wild man that doesn't comb his hair and it's all long and he's looks weird and always looking up to heaven, talking with his hands up and stuff like that. I mean, he's, you know, insane. People look at him like that. Well, he wasn't insane at all. He was not strange. He was bringing a message that many people in Israel respected. They didn't go out to see a political man. They didn't go out to see a a guy blowing like a flag in the breeze. They went out to hear somebody they needed to hear from. And so then Jesus asked a third question, what did you go out to see, a prophet? They knew he was a prophet. All the people considered him to be a prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm going to tell you something. He was more than a prophet. He was the messenger prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3 and also uh, elsewhere. Isaiah 43 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. By the way, just a side note, one of my professors at seminary would often pray that God would smooth out the rough places. And you know what he meant? He meant that your life has a few potholes in it and they need to be smoothed. Your life has some sin in it that needs to be removed. Your life has some lack of righteousness in it that needs to be added so that the valleys are filled and the rough places are are made plain. A good prayer request for yourself. Maybe you can store that away and ask sometime when you're praying, maybe at night before you fall to rest, Lord, would you smooth out some of my rough places? I need that. He was a special messenger, John was, like the one prophesied in Isaiah, the one prophesied in Malachi, chapter 3 and chapter 4. In fact, Jesus says John was the greater, greatest prophet that ever was. Very strange to think about that comparison in a way. He was holy and dedicated to God. He was a dedicated servant. He conducted his mission faithfully. It's interesting, too, because he was a prophet that saw the fulfillment of what he prophesied. Isn't that something? Isaiah didn't see the fulfillment of what, well, maybe he saw some of them, of course, but not the way far ones. Jesus is being prophesied by John, and John sees the fulfillment of him coming. This all doesn't diminish the Old Testament prophets. It just says that, you know, John has a rank higher than them. But then even more shockingly, Jesus says, for those of us that go into the kingdom of God and enjoy that blessing will be even greater than John. How is that possible? The greatness of the greatest servants of God in this phase of life will pale in comparison to what will be possible in God's kingdom in terms of seeing wonders, in terms of of serving God, in terms of being with Him. I mean, we don't even 
we don't even have a kind of a half of a clue of how wonderful the world will be when God reigns directly on this earth. Of course, he reigns in heaven now, but we're talking about when he reigns in Christ upon this earth. So think about that for yourself, too. You, you, if you're a citizen of heaven, will be in that kingdom, and you, too, can be great in the sight of God. And so, once again, as Revelation said, if you have spiritual ears, please listen. It's critical to hear what John preached and what Jesus says. Then, to be obedient once you have heard it. And thus, we get to the last section in verses 29 to 30. John has shown doubt. He needed assurance. He got assurance. John has been praised by none other than Jesus himself. And so will you if you have been faithful to him. But then there was uh, the twofold response we see in 29 and 30. Many in the audience heard Jesus and took what he said positively. They were affirming the message of John, the message of repentance. They said they knew that what Jesus was saying was true and right. It's telling, isn't it, that the tax collectors, it says even the tax collectors got it. The lowest of the low understood. That's kind of reminding me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where God chooses the foolish things of this world to put to shame the mighty. I mean, you see, you know, people they call today the salt of the earth, you know, the the blue-collar types, the, the simple family men and women and children and, and uh, you know, farmers and all of that, they kind of have a moxie that people you know, up there in the ivory tower in Washington don't have. Uh, it's it's kind of this thing, too, here, that there's people who, you know, even the tax collectors get it. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, what happens to them? You know, these people, These first group here, uh, the common people, the tax collectors, heard him. They approved of it. They were baptized by John and continued to hear Jesus' message with some level of receptivity. It says that they justified God. Do you know what that means? Does God need to be justified? (laughs) Not in the sense we do. So it doesn't mean that they made God right but that they said that God was right. They declared him to be righteous. So when God declares a sinner to be righteous, what does he do? He imputes to that sinner the righteousness of Christ, thus making him, constituting him as righteous in his sight. Then it can be said, this is a righteous person. This is now a saint. But when somebody, some person justifies God... There's no such transfer of righteousness because God already has righteousness, okay? So it's not about transferring righteousness. It's simply saying that God is inherently righteous. And so they justified God. Um, You know, that kind of... I want to just spend a minute with you on this idea because it's important to say that God is right, A lot of people are busy saying God is wrong. In Psalm 51, David said, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, 
you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And notice what he says next, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, I have sinned. In fact, when you confess, what are you doing? You're saying the same thing as God says about sin. You're saying, you're right, I'm wrong. Fearful thing, my friends, for a human being to say, God, I'm right, and you're wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar, because that's not going to fly. And so what you, when, you, when you confess your sin, you're actually, in a way, justifying God. You're saying, God, you were right all along. I need, I need that. I don't have it. I've blown it. And so they, they're justifying God is akin to exercising faith in God. I mean, if you don't believe that God even exists, you can't justify God. You can't approve of Him or anything. But if you are justifying God, you're believing that He exists, you're believing that He's right, you're believing that you're wrong, you're believing that you need Him for righteousness, pretty good sign here of their spiritual condition. On the other hand, verse 29 says, or 30 rather, but when the Pharisees and lawyers, they rejected the will of God for themselves. They rejected the will of God. God's will was for them very abundantly clear. What was, what was His will for them? Let me put it this way to you. It is God's will that you be saved. It is God's will that you repent. It's God's will that you recognize that He is right and you are wrong. It's God's will for you to listen to the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, to listen to Him preach to the poor in spirit, to recognize that you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on and so on, all the things that we've looked at in the Gospel of Luke and the Sermon on the Plateau and all of that. They were supposed to repent and believe in the King. They were supposed to submit themselves to His Lordship, to His Kingship, if we can put it that way. They were to receive baptism and demonstrate repentant faith. They were supposed to do works befitting uh, repentance, but they were a brood of vipers. They refused what Jesus taught and what John taught. You know, they had their own program, and they were not going to be moved from it. Listen, my friends, delete your program. Overwrite with God's program, okay? You can't be doing your own program. It's full of bugs. You need to replace it. One other thing here I thought of um, in terms of content of the text I never noticed this before, but let me say it this way just to summarize it. John's ministry was effective. If nothing else in your life, if you're a minister of the gospel like I am or like Jansen and and his wife and my wife and others of you that serve in the church and, and all of us really who are supposed to minister for Christ, if nothing else, if you could just know your ministry was effective, wouldn't that be satisfying? Wouldn't that help bolster you in the midst of doubt and fear and, and uncertainty and confusion about everything that's going on? Well, listen to this. It says in verse 29 that the tax collectors, all those common folk, had been baptized with the baptism of John and they believed in the Lord. That's a good word. 
That's why John was sent. But it says the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God. And what was their connection to John? They rejected John. And so John came in the way of righteousness, preaching the truth and the need for repentance. And those that received him, look, what was John's purpose? What did Isaiah chapter 40 say? I'm going to send one before me that will prepare the way of the Lord. And he did that. He did it. That's a good word. He he prepared the way of the Lord in these people's hearts that they believed in the gospel. Indeed, he truly went ahead of the Lord and prepared him. I don't know if John ever heard this part of what happened because his messengers had departed. Maybe word got back to him later on. But certainly after John left this life, he found out that he was well approved by God. So for us, do we recognize that God is right and that we are wrong in so many ways? If you recognize that God is right, then you are ready right now to receive his salvation. May I invite you to do that? You are ready right now. If you know he's right, you know, you might not be able to understand it. Let me say it this way. You might not understand everything. You're not able to understand everything. As smart as our smartest human beings are, we don't have everything in in mind of what God is doing and how he does it and all of that. If you have doubts about Jesus, look carefully at the historical record of what he did. Connect it back to the prophecies about the Messiah and see how they were fulfilled in him. What was that that John did when he had doubts? He went to... He didn't go to his counselor. He went to the counselor with a capital C, Jesus. That's what you need to do if you have doubts about him. Go to him, talk to him, ask him, look at his words. Trust that Jesus will mercifully answer you as he did John the Baptist. He will not you know, necessarily fix your situation immediately, but he will strengthen your faith to keep going. And know that the praise that you look for is not the praise of men, but the praise of the Son of God. He will not forget all that you've done for him. I trust that you will serve him, not just in theory, but indeed in practice, and receive from him assurance and praise down the line. Let us pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us that Jesus is the one to whom we should go when we have concerns and doubts and difficulties and confusion and all the rest. Lord, I pray that you'll help us. I don't know where everybody's at today, coming here, where their minds are. Hopefully their minds at least have been on the words that have been read here and spoken about the the message of Jesus. But, oh, Lord, my prayer is that you would encourage the downcast, that you'd uplift the, the ones that are in gloomy circumstances, that you would encourage those who are discouraged, that you would um, challenge those who have faltered in their faith and bring them back around to full confidence in you. And we thank you. You can work, Lord, through these few words and this poor minister and these poor saints and those who perhaps aren't yet saints. We thank you for what we see when we see the ministry of the Spirit of God is effective through the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.